Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this series, Genesis, A New Perspective, we are trying to breathe fresh life into this ancient text that lays the foundation for the Christian Bible. Each week, we will be exploring different ways that these Genesis stories impact us and the world around us and our ways of understanding God. I hope you enjoy. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I never really understood what Easter was all about. I knew it was about bunnies and chocolate and Easter egg hunts, but I never quite understood why my mother was so insistent that we go to church. I mean, why ruin all the fun, right? Right? It was only going to inhibit my ability to eat all the candy in my Easter basket, and I'm sure many of the children in here feel the exact same way. Why are we here right now? It didn't make much sense to me when I was a kid, and it still didn't make much sense to me when I was a teenager. I remember the first time that I learned what Easter was all about, the first time I really understood what it was that Christians were celebrating on Easter. I was in college, and I was having a conversation with my roommate, who was a Christian, and so I asked him, I said, explain this to me. I've grown up my whole life in the church, but I never really got it. He said, well, Easter's the day where Christians celebrate Jesus's resurrection. And I said, well, what does that mean? What is a resurrection? He said, a resurrection is when something's dead and it comes back to life. So three days after Jesus was crucified by the Roman government, he came back to life. And I was like, no, are you serious? All these years I've been celebrating Jesus becoming a zombie? Like he's a character on The Walking Dead. Anybody watch that show in here? Anybody watch that show? Interesting show. (laughs) Anyways, hey, what are you going to (laughs) do? Anyway, my roommate eventually, he said to me, he's like, no, 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 Alex, he's not a zombie. He's not a dead body that's walking around. He was dead, and then he came back to life. So I thought about this for a minute. And my response to him was, first of all, I'm surprised that people actually think this is true. And secondly, why do Christians care so much that Jesus came back from the dead? What difference does it make? Now, over the years, I've asked those two questions to a lot of different people who are Christians. And I always found their answers to be somewhat lacking, which is part of the reason why I rejected Christianity as a religious option when I was young. It just seems silly to me that having never seen the event for themselves, so many people were willing to believe that Jesus' resurrection was true. And it seems that my intuition about this was not so far off. I eventually came to realize that my misgivings about the resurrection were the misgivings of a lot of people. A Barna study suggests that 40% of the American public does not believe in the resurrection, And 30% of people who label themselves as Christians do not believe in the resurrection. It seems like I'm not the only one who questions the validity of this claim. And I would assume that many of you in here are probably in the same boat, even though you're in here today for Easter. Am I right about that? It's okay, you can nod. You won't get shoved out of the church. (laughs) Because, come on, let's be frank here. It's a crazy thing to believe that Jesus, after being executed, particularly in the way 
that he was executed could come back from the dead. So there's a couple different ways that we tend to try to explain away what it was the disciples claimed to have happened. One way is that Jesus wasn't dead when they thought he was. Another was he was dead, and then they imagined that he came back, or they just made it all up. Now, why do we today tend to approach the resurrection with such skepticism? Because remember, for the better part of 2,000 years, just about everybody assumed that the resurrection was real. Well, you and I, we have grown up in a time in human history unlike any other time before us. You and I have grown up knowing that things are testable. If I throw something up into the air, unless there's a rocket attached to it, it's going to come back down. Gravity, it's testable. If my heart stops beating and nobody bothers to resuscitate me, then I'm going to die. No heartbeat means no life. That's medically verifiable. Yes, there are some people who have died for short periods of time and been brought back to life, but with Jesus, we're talking about being dead for 36 hours or more and then coming back to life. No one in human history has ever made that claim besides him. And more importantly, that claim is not testable, nor is it verifiable. Now, this was my approach to the resurrection before I became a Christian. And what actually caused me to become a Christian was when I sat down and I read the Bible for myself. Now, if I was sitting in your seat and I heard a pastor say that, the first question that goes from my mind is, well, why did you change your mind after reading the Bible? Is there some evidence, some proof in there that tells you how Jesus could have come back to life after being dead for 36 hours? And I'll be straight up honest with you, no. There is nothing in the Bible to tell you that how that could have occurred. But what is in the Bible our arguments for why Jesus' resurrection is so very important and why today, the day we celebrate Jesus' resurrection, is the most important celebration of the Christian year. So today, I have two goals for us. The first goal is to help you understand why Jesus' resurrection is so important. Because remember, I asked that question and never got a really good answer to it. And the second thing I want you to come away with is why I choose to believe that the resurrection is true in spite of all the evidence to the contrary. So we ready to go on this? Ready to do this thing? Okay. The first place we need to go is I need to tell you a story. Because I have a story that I really think gets at the heart of the mystery of the resurrection. This story is one that I heard from a psychologist named Bill O'Hanlon, who trained under one of the most famous psychologist in the 20th century, a man by the name of Milton Erickson. Now, Erickson was one of these special people in the world of psychology who had the ability to walk into a situation, assess the problems, and then quickly transform a person's life in a relatively short period of time. In essence, what would normally take a regular psychologist years to achieve, Erickson could achieve in a matter of minutes. Now, this story takes place in the late 1950s, and Erickson is on a lecture tour. He's going around the country talking about some of his theories and ideas. And he receives a call from a former patient of his who he'd had a lot of success with, and this patient wanted Erickson to go 
see his favorite aunt who lived in Milwaukee. And one of his lecture tour stops was actually in Milwaukee. Now, this guy's aunt was suffering from depression. She had inherited a great deal of money, and she lived alone in their family mansion. She suffered from an illness which, over the last several years, had confined her to a wheelchair. And so her nephew was concerned that every time he spoke to her on the phone, that she was contemplating suicide, and he was hoping that Erickson could help her. So Erickson said, sure, be happy to go see her. So he gets to Milwaukee, does his lecture, travels to her house, and she meets him at the door and says, would you like a tour of my home? He says, sure, let's check it out. The first thing he notices is that she has converted all the stairs in the house to be wheelchair accessible, which was a very rare thing for the late 1950s. The second thing that strikes him is that this little old lady lives all alone in this gigantic mansion. And what's more, this mansion is kind of depressing. She kept all the curtains drawn, so it was very dark and gloomy on the inside, and all the furniture she owned was antiques, so it felt kind of like you were walking through a museum as you walked through the house. As they went along, she told him how she used to be very involved in her church, but in recent years, due to the fact that she was confined to a wheelchair, she had trouble getting out. Well, eventually, the tour ends at her favorite room, a greenhouse that's attached to the side of this mansion. This greenhouse was her pride and joy because this is where she spent most of her time during the day. In particular, she was extremely proud of this group of African violets she was growing. Now, if you want to know what an African violet looks like, it's sitting right there on the communion table. Now, African violets are very, very difficult to grow. They require a great deal of care because they're so precarious to maintain outside of their native habitat. Well, for a while, Erickson and this woman, they talk about plants and flowers and all this stuff. And then Erickson finds just the right moment and says, you know, your nephew, he's very worried about you. She says, I know, I know. I've just been very, very depressed lately, and it's been hard for me. And he says, well, you know what? I don't think your depression is your main problem, though. And she's kind of taken aback by this, and she says, really? Well, what is my main problem? He says, well, I think your main problem is you haven't been a very good Christian. Now, obviously, she's a little offended by this, because she only met this guy, what, 15 minutes ago? And now he's coming into her house and judging her faith. And he says, well, hold on, hold on a second. Hear me out. You have all this money, all this time on your hands, and this amazing talent with plants. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to get your church's newsletter. And every time there's a birth, a death, a graduation, an illness, any happy or sad event, I want you to get your driver. She had a driver who would take her places. I want you to get your driver to take you to these people's houses, and I want you to give them one of these African violets. The important thing is that you go yourself. Don't send a card. Don't send the plants in the mail. You need to go there and personally offer your congratulations or your condolences. Well, after hearing Erickson out, she agrees that perhaps she's 
fallen down on her duties and her faith, and that she's been pitying herself more than she should because of her illness. She tells Erickson that she will try and follow his advice. So Erickson leaves, goes on with his lecture tour, and doesn't hear anything about her again. Until 12 years later, he receives a letter in the mail from his former patient. Attached to this letter is an article from the Milwaukee Sentinel Journal with a headline that reads, African Violet Queen of Milwaukee Dies, Mourned by Thousands. They couldn't fit all the people into the church who wanted to attend her memorial service because she had touched so many people's lives with her presence and with her African violets. Isn't it interesting how a woman who is on the verge of death ends up bringing life to so many people? You see, there is a theme that is pervasive throughout the Bible, a thread that connects the beginning to the end. It is a paradox that is laid out in the opening chapters of Genesis and recurs over and over again. And the paradox goes something like this. When you live only to serve yourself, you end up feeling empty, lost, and sad. But when you live to serve others, you find joy, peace, and fulfillment. It is a paradox because it goes against everything that we have been taught by society. Society tells us that we need to look out for ourselves if we're going to survive, that we need to be selfish, that we need to stand up for what is ours, to let no one compromise our security. And yet, what many of us do not realize is it is our security which is our downfall. Erickson looked at this woman's life, and he saw that she was huddled in a nest of security. And that security was slowly choking the life out of her. She was so focused on herself that she was in a downward spiral. Erickson looked at the world around her, and the only sign of life he saw was an African violet. Ironically, that African violet was the only thing she was serving the only thing she was taking care of. So rather than focus on all the negatives, her house, her age, her illness, he decided to focus on the one thing that was bringing her life. And he used that one thing, those flowers, as an opportunity for vulnerability. He said, if you're willing to put yourself out there, if you're willing to take a chance and be vulnerable, and give people this plant that has given you so much life, then you will no longer feel empty, lost, and sad, but you will find joy, peace, and fulfillment. At the heart of this biblical paradox is the issue of vulnerability. Now, you really got to track with me on this part of it, because my entire sermon kind of hinges on it. Vulnerability is a double-edged sword. I once heard the storyteller Brene Brown say that vulnerability is at the core of our sense of shame, fear, and our struggle for worthiness. 
But vulnerability is also the birthplace of joy, belonging, and love. So let me put this a different way for you. When you allow yourself to be vulnerable, you're opening yourself up because people will see you as weak and they can attack you. And so therefore, you can struggle when you become vulnerable because in those attacks, when you're weak, it can feel like you're ashamed. It can feel like you're not worthy. But then when you're vulnerable, another thing can happen. You can find joy. You can find love. You can find belonging. And this is what happens every time you allow yourself to be vulnerable. A way that I like to think of it is vulnerability is the gateway that separates a life of selfishness from a life of service. It is the difference between the person who truly lives and the person who only lives to die. It is a quality that is seen as a sign of weakness in our society, but in the Bible is perhaps the greatest marker of strength. It is the quality that I believe defined who Jesus was more than anything else, and it is the reason why I believe that the resurrection is possible. You see, Erickson walked into this woman's home, and he saw that she was dying on the inside because she was consumed by her shame. She didn't want people to see her in a wheelchair. She didn't want people to judge her, judging what she once was, a vital, active, productive member of her community, to what she had become, this frail, dying shadow of her former self. She was so scared of being vulnerable that she didn't want people to see her. So she shut herself up inside of her house so that nobody could see her. This is why she kept the blinds drawn down. She did not want people to see her. But what Erickson said to her gave her the motivation to embrace her vulnerability. What he said to her gave her the strength to venture out beyond her home into this world of the unknown. She stopped caring what people thought about her. She stopped caring about whether or not they thought she was worthy. And she just let people see her for who she was. And then she did something else, something so important. She entered into people's vulnerability. She entered into their pain and joy, into their happiness, into their sorrow. And as a result, she found life and life abundant. The point of this story, the entire reason why I'm telling it to you today, is because what I want you to take away is that vulnerability is the key to a life that is worth living. Do you hear me when I'm saying that? Vulnerability is the key to a life that is worth living. So, if vulnerability is the key to life, and a woman who is dying is brought back to life by her willingness to be vulnerable, then could a man of total vulnerability overcome death? It's an interesting question, is it not? It's not a question of logic, because you all know the logical answer to that question. It's no. But remember, the Bible is not based on a foundation of logic. The Bible's based on a foundation of anti-logic, of paradox. Everything that the Bible teaches is totally against what we learn in society. And yet every single one of you in here know that that paradox is true. The more you serve others, the more you find life. And what of the man 
who gives of himself fully for everyone, the man who serves everyone so much that he dies, will that man not find life? You see, Christianity at its core is a religion of vulnerability. You cannot be Christian unless you are willing to be vulnerable. And I really have to say that again because that's so important. You cannot be a Christian unless you are willing to be vulnerable. Why? Because the resurrection, it's not testable. It's not provable. There is no evidence. There is only hearsay. I so often hear Christians talk about the resurrection as though it were a fact. It is not a fact. By the very act of believing in the resurrection, you are making yourself vulnerable. Because if you say you believe that, what's the world going to say? Everybody outside of here is going to be like, you're crazy. You're crazy. That's what you are. So you're opening yourself up to that shame, to that inability to be worthy. But I'll tell you what I found when I embraced it. I found joy. I found belonging. And most importantly, I found love. You see, what I couldn't appreciate is that often the resurrection of Jesus is very much like that African violet that you see over there. That African violet was the only sign of life in this woman's house. And very often, the resurrection is very much like the only sign of life in our lives. And if you're willing to take a chance, if you're willing to embrace that life, if you're willing to be vulnerable and put yourself out there and accept that the resurrection might be possible, then you know what waits for you on the other side? Life and life abundant. This is why Easter is so important to Christians all around the world because Jesus' resurrection is the source of our vulnerability and the gateway to a life that's worth living. So I end today by saying this. You can leave here today and go on with your life and decide that you're going to stay inside the house of what you know, inside this world of things that you're comfortable with. You can leave here today and live in a world where things like the resurrection seem impossible. You can take comfort in the fact that everything is testable and verifiable. Or you can leave here today and give yourself permission to be vulnerable. You can embrace a life of vulnerability. You can step outside of your house, out of the world of what you know, and you can give yourself permission to believe when there is no proof. You can embrace the resurrection. You can embrace the paradox of the Bible. And I think what you might find when you allow yourself to be vulnerable is that you too have been raised from the dead. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.